This podcast is proudly presented by Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. It's 2023 and modern climbers are more accomplished than ever. And we don't just mean on the wall. Patagonia has always seen the value in being bold, whether it means pushing high points or having the audacity to demand more for our planet. So what's it mean to be a strong climber? Full commitment to the sport and to our communities. It means not just working towards futuristic first ascents, but also a better future. And we aren't going to get there alone. For Patagonia's 50th year, we're looking forward, not back. And together, we can prioritize purpose over profit to protect this planet. Get involved, read stories to get you out there, and join a community that values what we do off the wall as much as we do on. Find out more at patagonia.com slash climbing. We get support from Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort. But most importantly, your snacks. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in fit, comfort, and working in the long term to offset CO2 emissions by teaming up with Climate Partner to invest in social and climate offset projects worldwide for select product, including their guide and ver trail climbing packs. Deuter packs are PFC-free, meaning no forever chemicals, and they honor their promised life time warranty since their packs were meant to be on your back and not in landfills. So you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting sendy, whether at the crag or in the alpine. Today we're going to talk about Ali. Ali means come on in a way or to encourage. Okay, we are done with the simple and normal uses of Ali. Now let's cut to the chase. LA Outdoor Personal Care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Their rich and repairing ingredients for their skincare collection are inspired by desert landscapes, and their simple and recyclable packaging makes them eco-sustainable. LA commits to protecting the open spaces that we love by partnering with the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. That's LA Outdoor, A-L-L-E-Z. LA Outdoor, made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Who is Otsun? More than prolific crack climbing gloves, Otsun has been making innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance since 1998. Their climbing shoe designs are all original, developed and manufactured in Czech Republic, and 100% gender neutral. Beyond their sticky rubber, Otsun is renowned for their hardware, harnesses, and the biggest, lightest crash pad on the market. Find your new favorite climbing shoes and accessories at Backcountry, Moose Jaw, Camp Saber and Amazon. You know, most alcoholics, you would say, have sort of this invisible line in the sand. You couldn't totally define when it was, but there would be days where, you know, I'd just be at a bar with my buds and not getting wasted, but having a few beers. But even the fact that I would hide it from my girlfriend at the time, because this goes back to that early childhood, like always wanting to like be in people's good graces. Um, I think mostly I was just afraid of being judged. And so I would just start to hide what I was doing. Since we've started the show, we've had a couple episodes that explore addiction from a few different angles and how it impacts those who experience it. Addiction is the kind of topic where judgment is easy. Shame is at the core of addiction. It thrives best in secrecy when we feel most alone and keeps stories like these hidden in the dark. It's a chronic disease that changes both brain structure and function. 
but it's not a sign of weakness or character defect or metric of worth. And it's stories like this one that give us more people-centric focus on recovery. And it reminds us that our capacity to recognize experiences of shame runs parallel with growth. And at that point, I don't think it was drinking alcoholically, but I was getting the, the unfortunate skill, which really isn't a skill, but I was learning to lie about it. And then once you start doing that, of course, with, a, with any form of dishonesty, it just sort of feeds itself. But there were times even in those years where I remember thinking like, well, I should take a, a couple of weeks off drinking. And I think I did a few times, but like, you know, you're, you're restless, irritable, and discontent is the terminology we say. And uh, especially without the chosen vice, right? Like usually you're okay when you're on it, but really your problems begin when you, when you stop. But yeah, so I, I think I, I knew I was in that direction probably long before. You know, we're talking about living a rock climbing life where you're outdoors all the time. But I was out there and it was clear to me, you know, I was still not really happy. I could like chase all the sunsets in the world and climb whatever my limit of climbing was and it wasn't going to fill a void. Most people in recovery would tell you that even the use of alcohol itself is sort of just a topical thing for a much deeper condition. Um, and so, yeah, like the conditions that preceded me to be someone who drank alcoholically were probably always there in my life. They just really got exposed when I started living on the road because you kind of reduce your life to just nature and you would think that's enough to fill the void. And when it's not, you're like, oh shit. <laughs> If you got me around a campfire with a bunch of climbers and I'm the guy, of course, being obsessed who like over the years I became a certified sommelier, I was a home brewer, I could talk to you all day long, still can, about all types of beverages of any kind, any continent, the process to make it, etc. So if I could wax poetic on that shit while at a campfire, it was like, come on. I wouldn't even say like I was pressured in any way by that culture to further that tendency of behavior. If anything, I probably put it on people. You know, people are out there wanting to go to bed early so they can climb well the next day. And I was the guy being like, oh, let's just sit by this fire and empty another bottle. Uh, so it, that's my experience. I do think that uh, the party lifestyle, a bit of a rebel culture is, is innate to the climbing culture, especially in the early days. And we may collectively be moving a little bit into a, a more expanded point of view these days as a community. But uh, yeah, no doubt there are going to be people and there have been people, I think, whose situations in life or vices, the climbing life can empower those. And I think it sort of did to me, uh, but I wouldn't abdicate ultimately like it was all my choosing for sure but i do think it's a lifestyle that enables people to live that way if that's what they're prone to in the first place okay i'm on you were listening to the love of climbing podcast it's a funny sense of uncomfortable violence. i was like wow this is the opposite of my podcast but you know here we go <laughs> I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing. Is it to the, or to, do you say to For the Love of Climbing podcast? I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. Yeah, yeah, I see it. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This is not a climbing podcast. Well, sort of. It's a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability. Here's the show. Easy cheesy. Hey, 
a quick heads up. This episode that talks about alcohol and addiction recovery talks about, well, alcohol. This story is told through the lens of Lucas Roman, and it isn't meant to be comprehensive of everybody's lived experience. Take care of yourselves while listening and reach out for support if you or someone you know is struggling with substance use disorder and addiction. The year is 2023. Booze has been around since circa the late Stone Age, but a lot has changed since then. The science community, along with many others, have been rejecting terms like addict and alcoholic and recommend non-pejorative person-first language with the hope to increase better recovery outcomes. These terms can carry a lot of cultural baggage and stigma. This podcast recognizes that there are more appropriate and clinically accepted words, and we'll try and utilize them when we can. Inevitably, with new understanding will come new language. And this episode is meant to focus on how we can better understand and support people in long-term recovery. Uh, so, name is Lucas Roman. Uh, I am currently living in Orange County, Costa Mesa is the city. And I am a student in nursing, rock climber. Sometimes I do writing and uh, anything else I can do to help other people, I suppose. Within my arc and my development as a person, I've, uh, I had plenty of low points um, and misbehaved quite, uh, quite a bit. Uh, so these days, yeah, it's a very important part of my life to pursue a wholehearted kindness and, and honesty within my relationships, and, and it's like a point of pride. Uh, my life goes better when I have a certain amount of discipline and structure and honesty and all that as a part of it. My general background, um, I guess, I'm not sure how it all works out. I think you'd call me first generation, maybe, because my parents came from Mexico. Um, So it was definitely a big part of our family's identity, I think, is our Mexican culture. At the same time, my parents grew up in an era where they were um, maybe partially persecuted for for what they represented as immigrants. And so it was a decision they made together to raise my brother and myself and my younger sister kind of speaking like English as a first language. So we did lose quite a bit of that from a culture point of view. Uh, But I think with, you know, food and family holidays and traditions, we're still quite Mexican. I think the slang term you'd say is uh, pocho. It's uh, kind of a Mexican who's lost his culture. Lucas had a good childhood. And when he was around 12, his parents divorced. It was difficult at the time, no doubt, and it was an uprooting of identity, um, and it probably didn't make us any more uh, Mexican back to that point because, like, you know, you lose more culture when your nuclear family sort of dissipates. But all that said, uh, my sense of identity was never that attached to any one ethnicity or country. I can't say, uh, and I don't mean any disrespect to anybody who is deeply American and has that sense of patriotism, but I didn't come from that culture in in terms of having a family that appreciated being proudly American, uh, nor was it Mexican. So I'd never really had an attachment to like, am I this or am I that? Um, it never felt like afflicted or persecuted for being neither, um, but neither celebrated, uh, if that sort of makes sense, just kind of floated through it. You know, if it's sort of more in the collective awareness of people these days to be inclusive in the outdoor arenas or in life in general, I think that's a super good point of progress. When I started, there definitely wasn't as many ethnic diversity in the sport as I came into it. But also, like I said earlier, I never really felt like 
that was the measure of acceptance or not. So I don't think I was even as aware of how little inclusiveness there was in the collective community until it started becoming a little bit in vogue to like focus on it. I'm like, oh yeah, this is totally, you know, um, kind of one dimensional in terms of demographic. But I can't really say that I felt separate or different or not a part of uh, the climbing community. Yeah, I, I'm really happy to see where it's going and where it's gone. And I am even more happy when I do see, you know, people of ethnic backgrounds and diversity or particularly people of Latin backgrounds at a crag or something. And if I get a chance to share an element of culture, whether that's music or language or a discussion about food or whatever, it's, it's really nice to feel that freedom to talk about all topics that you otherwise wouldn't get if that people group wasn't a part of it. I didn't carry a great awareness to sort of feeling like an outsider at all. Um, I think I was really treated well by anybody. Like the day I first walked into a climbing gym, there was a handful of kids that very easily could have been exclusive and, uh, and not welcoming and they were anything but. And for that stage of my life, it was, I mean, incredible. So I guess I was fortunate to walk into that. Gosh, I, I was, who was I? A lost, a lost little fellow. Um, the real roots of me getting into climbing were predicated on that story I told you about my dad. You know, we'd go outside as kids. We weren't like, you know, super poor, but we were not wealthy by any measure as well. So you could go out to nature and just pull off on the side of the road and the few times a year there's snow in Southern California, you know, you can ride an inner tube or a sled down. You don't need to buy a lift ticket. And that for us would be a quality outdoor experience. And, you know, a hawk might fly by and my dad would just be like, hey, mijo, check this out. Like somewhere in there, we've got forefathers who, who respect this sort of biology and life cycle in nature. And it was profound. And so I think I always wanted to connect to that. Uh, I didn't have any sort of an outdoor activity in that avenue until high school I started surfing, but also surfing can feel pretty urban and not necessarily very natural uh, if you're doing it in like Newport Beach or Huntington Beach and you turn around from shore and there's a bunch of buildings, it's not like you're out in the wilderness. Uh, so climbing came about because my dad and my uncle teamed up and I think they went to like an REI class, uh, learned how to build like a top rope anchor. They bought a very small like three piece rack with some nuts and stuff. And they went out to Joshua Tree a handful of times when I was in junior high. And, you know, for all I knew back then, they were going to some distant corner of the earth. Like, you know, I would stay at home. This was just something dad would do uh, and probably only no more than a handful of times. But when you're a kid, this imagination runs wild. Uh, somewhere in that time, my dad got a subscription to a rock and ice or a climbing magazine. And one day I came home from school, of course, young and like naive. And I opened up the mailbox and on the cover is, I believe it was Tomas Huber on the El Cap, uh, the Salathe roof pitch. And, you know, he's hanging with one arm by a piton and just all this exposure beneath him, uh, which just blew my little childhood mind away. And the seed was planted there. Lucas did a little bit of climbing at a local gym at various points during high school, but it didn't really turn that corner until somewhere in early 2007. Somehow that image of uh, Thomas Huber came to mind and I was like, well, there's a climbing gym not far away. Uh, I went in there and I just knew right away, like that's what I'm gonna do this year. And this was 2007 and so I just, 
I think I cleared out my checking account, which at the time like couldn't have had more than five or six hundred dollars, and that was the cost of a year membership. So I just paid it in full and said, "Let's do this," and walked in and met those people. And of course, once that happens, you're you're gonna plug into the community. And so by spring or June of 2008, me and a few guys were you know trying the Salathay Wall, and we were 20 pitches up and had an amazing experience. But we didn't summit; <laughs> it got totally shut down. So that was a within you know 14, 16 months. I went from beginner to doing whatever I could to going outside and then going for longer trips outside. And at first, that starts with your local crags, like you know Southern California. You have Joshua Tree, Talk Eat Suicide, and I didn't really hit the road as like a decided road trip, living out of my truck and being itinerant and place to place until the fall of 2008. And I would say from the fall of 2008 until fall of 2010, most everything in my life was ordered around how could I work as little as possible and climb as much as possible. And I was looking for a new direction in life, but also like it probably would have been good to have a check and balance, uh, and I didn't. until I met my significant other, I really, I'd, I probably couldn't have been more self-centered, which again, I, I can see how useful that life has been now that I'm hopefully not living in that pathway. Uh, but it would have been nice to have a few anchor points to sort of pull me back. And I mean, in no way am I even near carrying a halo over my head. I've got plenty of defects of character, but largely I live a way better life and a life that I'm proud of and is honest and, and moral to my version of what that is. I. Definitely wasn't living that way back then, although I wasn't doing anything egregious, like it's just climbing, it's not <laughs> illegal um, or you know anything like that. But it wasn't just climbing prowess and, and getting some grades ticked. I just always had this deep desire for beauty and a connection to it. And back then it was primarily my means to find connectivity uh, and rapture and revelation was in the outdoor experience. Um, so it was a great thing to have done, but obviously we can get into imbalances if all we're seeking is not just the next climbing grade, but the next sunset that we're chasing. Because while those are beautiful and they do connect you, they don't give you purpose alone. And I'm not giving back to others or to the earth if I'm just taking all these beautiful pictures of it or something. So I think with enough time, everybody will ask questions of purpose and direction. And I had to make some discoveries through time. Lucas did what so many dream of. He initiated van life and chose the dirtbag existence in order to climb full-time. On the trajectory, uh, I, I think I got exactly what I needed for those two years because within six months it was clear on the nights that I was by myself in my tent, those open solitary spaces were all I needed to realize I was probably empty on a different level internally, that I was chasing something through climbing through nature that I couldn't necessarily fill. And I didn't want to accept that realization at the time, but I, I was having those uh, moments of clarity where like, okay, there's some misconnection or deep loneliness within. And I think my tool that I always used was to um, to just drink through that and to use alcohol as a means to chase further euphoria and revelation. But looking back, that's probably when I started using that more than just a, a casual person's way to do it. And uh, yeah, probably some of that was genetic. There's a lot of you know alcoholism in my family's history and in many economically challenged people's histories as well. So whether it's a function of nature or nurture, probably both. I would look back and say that my alcoholism was starting to really thrive in those years when I was on the road because 
if nothing else, you know, it was something I could turn to and it would be a temporary, I think, delusion that I was fine and connected and felt spritzy and lovely and in unison to both the earth and my fellow man. And when I came home and decided to like be a part of a relationship, it was really difficult to sort of domesticate myself, having spent a few years out living freely and wildly and, and doing all that. So that's when, of course, the drinking went way further because, well, you know, now I'm like living in a normal city like common folk and I just didn't have skills to live well. And so I drank my way through it, which quickly went from like a thing I did every day to just an uncontrollable obsession. And I guess the way I would put it is primarily what I was chasing through drinking was the sort of connection I always craved through the outdoor experience. Um, it gave me a version of that or a delusion of that and a euphoria and a chemical buzz that I probably interpreted as like the good life. Uh, inevitably, I got obsessed with chasing that feeling and then that obsession led to a physical addiction and probably in that order. Although like whether it's genetically influenced or not, I think if you feed somebody enough of what I was drinking for a long enough period of time, you're gonna get hooked on it. Uh, and so yeah, that led into like a very rough uh you know my poor partner man she really dealt with some tough stuff because i didn't have any skills for life i could not be honest i didn't know how to do anything that incorporated other people that wasn't thinking beyond myself and my selfish needs and uh i think i, I worked at restaurants i made a, attempts to keep climbing here and there but largely i lost the discipline for climbing i couldn't climb outside due to just always being someone who's chasing you know the next buzz at some point, in many but not all trajectories, people with alcohol use disorder stop drinking for a chemical buzz alone. Once you're really in the addiction, physically speaking, um, you'll have a couple of withdrawal experiences that are just terrible. The scientists can spell those out. And so that window for each person can be a various amount of time. For me, that was probably like, I'd say anywhere from 2012 to 2014 when I finally found a sense of sobriety. Those two years were just drinking every day until you could uh, go to bed. But you're really, you're not trying to get buzzed at all. It stops kind of working that way. And, you know, nobody can live a life that's that dishonest to themselves and their significant others and have a clear conscience. And when I tried to turn my life to an ordered life that most people would say is like a good thing, you know, you want to live for and with another person and build a life together, that's when I found I was totally incapable. And then, of course, the drinking ultimately took hold. Lucas considered himself fortunate to have hit a low point that he found unconscionable because eventually this low point would give him the gift of sobriety, he says. But before things could move in a better direction, the things he cared about the most suffered the consequences. I think there was a period where it was going okay. Like uh, performance-wise, I was never drinking that much during the day where you would say it was like a liability and this guy's drunk on the wall or anything like that. There was a period of time that it probably worked to quell a little bit of fear and to center my ability, and I think that it was a short window, but it was there. And then it very quickly, though, did digress. Eventually, I couldn't really climb outside, especially like what I loved to do, you know, multi-pitch, bigger endeavors, something where you're on the wall all day, you're out in nature, you're going to just sort of get into that state of depravity and dehydration. And that's like, I mean, go back to like Doug Robinson and the climber's visionary, that's like in climbing history, there's this spiritual quest in our pursuits, and we go up there for a realization, revelation. That's what I wanted from climbing from day one, and probably from alcohol too.
And so I would at times be on these multi-pitch climbs with partners and I'd bring a little flask and yeah, sometimes you'd be like, come on, it's for the summit. You know, it wouldn't be judged, but ultimately I just had to stop all the kinds of climbing that I liked to do the most because it meant that I'd be further separated from drinking and withdrawal. Also, when I was on lead, I was in a divided mind. I was totally not comfortable with myself. Am I in balance? Have I been honest with the people I care about? Is there any imbalance? Like, should I be climbing today or should I actually be like home helping to do the landscaping that we got to do or something? For me, if I can answer those questions appropriately, things just line up. In those days, everything was not lined up and I was dishonest to everybody. I wasn't like showing up for my duties as a son, as a as a significant other, as an employee, whatever. So the sum total of the tension that I carried and the sense that I just like my body was screaming to not leave the alcohol source for any extended period of time, I couldn't be a part of those situations. It took away uh, I wouldn't say it took away, like it's not the issue, it's the condition within me that creates the issue. Um, yeah, you just, in eventually you're incapable to do anything good or consequential in life. Climbing, of course, would be also one of those things. And so I was full of fear. I couldn't comfortably lead. I didn't have a good self-concept. And all of those things put together made climbing just terrible, which meant, you know, the easiest way to do that is just to not go climbing anymore. You could convince yourself that it was responsible, uh, but ultimately it was a distraction. So my climbing suffered greatly, as did many things, my relationships to other people, my relationship within myself and to the outdoor experience. Lucas still had some ambition, though, and he and his partner would try climbing in the gym a few days a week with a few requisites in place. I would insist I'll drive my car because I've got bottles stashed in there. I had to take alcohol everywhere, you know, it would be on my person or in the men's bathroom so that if my partner wanted to climb in just the 15 minutes that she's lead climbing and I'm belaying her is enough for me to go to the men's locker, take a drink of my flask or whatever, and then go about. So there was just nothing I could do without having that present. Being the kind of person that you and I would probably agree like we want to be in terms of someone who really can push ourselves outside and come to our limits, uh, so incapable. I mean, I couldn't even walk out the front door without having a panic attack if I didn't have alcohol. In, in recovery, we call these all war stories. At the end of the day, though, we also learn, I think, in recovery and sobriety that those things are not stand out at all. And uh, maybe not everybody who's in a recovery situation is also a rock climber and therefore doesn't have the exact stories of alcoholic behavior that I do, but you go far enough down the path and you just can't do anything without having a drink or a drug close to you. You can't sleep for more than a few hours. You wake up with it by the bed. You know, you take a couple shots, whatever, quiet your mind and fall back asleep. And usually in the morning you wake up with an impulse to vomit or dry heave and then you take a drink as quickly as you can to stop your shakes and then hopefully, you know, make a goal to like carry through to like three or four in the afternoon to not have a drink. But of course, the moment any shakes or withdrawal symptoms came in, I was having a drink. And maybe you're not on the hard stuff yet, and maybe you are, depends on the day. And then, you know, by four o'clock, I'm getting ready for the restaurant shift. And of course, you need a few just to get you loose enough to operate. And then you come home and you do it all over. I mean, like, it's not so much how much you had, it's about what it was doing to you. But I'd say it's pretty common practice for most people to be at that stage where drinking a full 750 milliliter bottle of any hard alcohol substance vodka, whiskey, or whatever, that's a guarantee. You're, you're probably hitting that. Uh, and then a few things on the side, some cups rather than glasses, like cups of wine or beer or whatever. But that's also not to say that, like, you know, if someone's listening and they're thinking, well, am I or am I not an alcoholic? Like, 
just because you're not drinking that same amount, it's probably not a justification if you know in the inner corridors of your heart that like you're not living the way you want to you know, the honesty comes in other ways. And so it's really not about the amount. It's about why we are doing it. We had a few questions about the difference between binge drinking and alcohol use disorder. So we turned to a professional to help us break it down. This is Pete Murphy. He's a climber, a licensed chemical dependency professional, and has been working as a trauma and addiction therapist since 2010. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for having me on. So binge drinking is considered to be four or five drinks on the same occasion, and that's according to SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration. It's not terribly uncommon for most people who choose to start using alcohol to have at least one episode of binge drinking in their life, according to those parameters. For binge drinking or any alcohol use to cross over into a diagnosable alcohol use disorder, the use has to have met certain base criteria, and this is according to the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So without listing out all the criteria, it mostly states that if your use more than once in a 12-month period has resulted in you drinking more than you intend to, a lack of control over your use, preoccupation with drinking, cravings, impacts at work, home, school, or relationships, increased tolerance, and presence of withdrawal, you may meet the criteria for an alcohol use disorder. And again, this is just coming from a medical model. From a humanistic model, I would say that if you do an honest examination of your use of alcohol or other substances and think about the criteria I just listed, you need to decide if your alcohol use is harmful to you. Uh, The big scary question is, can I always drink in safety? So you can always check with a therapist, the SAMHSA website, or even a primary care physician. They can give you a basic screening if you need more guidance with sorting that out. In regards to the term addict or alcoholic, they're not medical terms, and for some they can be seen as hurtful, derogatory, and shame-inducing, especially addict unless you identify that way. I think it is up to you to decide if you identify as an alcoholic, and that term was most popularized by Alcoholics Anonymous. Even seemingly quiet struggles with substance use can be horrific experiences for people, so I think how you choose to talk about it or identify yourself in relation to it is really very personal. Because it's a a universal language and a safe space, I'll I'll go to a little bit of the recovery talk. Um, And so like the the terminology we use is that you're in a a state of like incomprehensible demoralization. You know, you're, you're restless, irritable and discontent. And so like that's the daily life experience. You know, if your operating system is that bad, you can't even step behind it or above it to look at it. You don't really have the chance to analyze it as you would today with maybe a mindfulness practice. So it's just this constant experience or barrage of just trying to live the next moment. Uh, But those few moments would come. And of course, those periods were terrible because I had no tools to live. Anytime I could actually reflect on my position or stead in life, man, it was just like, you're not proud. You're demoralized to levels that you couldn't comprehend. If I would have said, well, check back in a month from now, a month from now, I guarantee you I would have been like, there's no way I could wake up, look myself in the mirror with this much like self-loathing. And sure enough, you go ahead a month and you're like, oh my God, I feel so much worse about who I am. I'm a terrible person. I'm lying to everybody. I'm stealing. I'm doing like anything you can by hook or crook. Yeah, it's a bad place to be. I'm glad. (laughs) Glad we're out of that one. It's all, I'm so happy about all of it now that it like, I'm just, damn, I'm blessed, you know? Uh, but 
it is not pretty when it happens. Uh, for anyone, in my experience, with any sort of addiction or ism, if you will, you got to get to a breaking point, and usually you got to go through quite a few of them because when it's really shit hitting the fan, we're really good at lowering our standards to like, okay, I guess I never thought I'd be doing this, but I'll, I can go a little worse. Uh, so yeah, I had to hit a bottom. What mine looked like is not going to be what the next guy's is, but it was enough time living in that incomprehensible daily demoralization and lying and cheating and stealing to every person and institution around me that I just couldn't handle it. At the same time, uh, the alcohol was so bad that like as much as I had to drink to not be in withdrawal was also destroying my liver and my body. Like at that point I was checking into the hospital probably every couple of weeks. Like you can feel 100% that your body is failing you, that it cannot take the demand you're putting on it. Combined with that moral or that mental illness and, and just all those dark corridors that you're living in. So it's a combination of a lot of those things. And then my significant other also came to a point where she had to move out and she did it very lovingly and made it very clear and came to a realization for herself that you know she always is the type who would want to fix other people and do so from a really beautiful and pure heart but she had to admit her own powerlessness and no amount of goodwill and love could change my course and that was really hard but it was also I think liberating for her because it's toxic, it's terrible to anyone to suffer being the significant other of somebody who's actively in the pits of that despair. And so that was one of those points where I understood how helpless I was because it wasn't as if I was like being productive or paying rent. At this point, she's probably carrying everything financially. I probably couldn't even cook my own food most days of the week. I have no idea how I even got through these days, uh, which is probably why I was always in the hospital. I can't even remember because near the end of your drinking, you start to go on these progressive binges where it's just like six to eight days of whoa. You're so lucid that, you know, it's almost like hallucinating. And so these benders or binges like just kind of get longer and longer. And somewhere in the middle of one of them, as often happens, there's kind of this moment of clarity, at least enough to reach out. And so I think I called her or my dad or both. And so, yeah, I, I agreed to go to a, uh, a detox and rehab facility. And I would love to say that that was like the cure all. But, you know, what I learned from that was that, oh, if you actually get like a medically supervised detox to stave off the withdrawal, you get some benzodiazepines or something. And like, it's a shitty way to get straight. But really what you're getting in recovery speech is you're getting dry, like you're getting that shit out of your system but you're not getting a solution on how to live. And uh, if you're not actually having those tools to live correctly, life's gonna get the better of you. And you're not actually sober, you're just kind of what we say is dry, uh, on a dry drunk, like you're not in the solution of living. And so I had a good summer of that where I was like, reaching out for help, but not willing to really do what was required. And people really get roadblocked there a lot, I think. Lucas had spent a summer sort of bouncing and skidding off the bottom. And it happened again and again and again, where he'd check himself into a detox or rehab center, stay a week or a few days, check out, and then back in again. In that stage, as a total newcomer, I just wasn't ready for the social setting of being around alcohol yet. And so I went to a friend's wedding where I was supposed to be the best man, and I just told myself, well, I gotta like honor my duty and make it this duty-bound thing, when really it was like, I knew I was gonna drink. Up until the point that you really declare that you're an alcoholic or whatever ism you have, you kind of have this naivety, but once you claim it and you know there's a solution, you're fully responsible, right? 
a huge part of recovery is just sharing it freely with other people. And so it's really just to let anybody who may listen understand that like wherever they're at, if that's something they're dealing with, there is so much opportunity and hope just a phone call or a handshake away. Um, I think it's important to paint that landscape so somebody can understand if that's the makeup of their day-to-day life, there's such a good solution on the other end of it. So hopefully that, that helps in some way for someone. There's a lot of people who have taken the basic, simple premise of what those steps in recovery fellowships are, and they have sort of complicated them. And I think it's been my experience that the closer you stay to the source and do it through the literature as it's indicated with a sponsor or a guide, I think that's where you get the best results. So with that said, in the steps themselves, you have an inventory process where you really like uncover all your shit from your entire life. And it's this beautiful thing. It's literally, it's a spiritual experience. Uh, and it's amazing because the end result of the fourth and fifth step where you then really kind of like disclose all of your shit, there's a level of honesty that you are required to submit to that frees the fuck out of your mental state. It's the best way I can put it. And you're dishing all of your dirtiest shit to somebody and you think I'm gonna be so full of shame, but there's a power in declaring your position and all those things. And it's hard to summarize all the beauty and the magic in each individual step, but just trust that there is a pathway to be free of guilt and shame. And a part of that pathway very much is also amending that past. So I've definitely made mistakes as you've heard and other ones that you haven't that I have had to like make amends for, others that I'm actively making amends. And so by all intents and purposes, if I meet that person again, I'm so excited to like do the best to give an honest and sincere amend. And that's not just an apology, but that's doing anything I can. But I think that when you've spent years living in that depravity and then you start to adopt a behavior, and at this point it's been, I don't know, six or something years for me, and you build this resume, if you will, or this catalog of, of good living, of esteemable action, and you know you've amended, you're paying it back actively in, in installments in my case, um, it, any of those things give you a sense of esteem for where you are in your process that I think totally trumps the guilt and the shame. Because you realize that redemption's like, it's a process, it's not something, you don't get absolved from that shit overnight. Um, it came piecemeal for me, but there was a sense of peace and that freedom from that shame and that guilt that came pretty quickly just for not drinking, just for being sober. You know, I was taught very quickly that there's more to this whole thing than just not drinking, that's for sure. We're gonna take a short break, so don't go anywhere. Or we're a podcast, you can take us everywhere. Patagonia makes high-performance gear for climbing. From cragging essentials like the Kaliza and Menga rock pants to the redesigned Nano Air Light hybrid hoodie that keeps you comfortable when you're working hard in cold conditions. All of Patagonia's technical climbing products are designed and tested in partnership with their ambassador team. They're made to move, built to endure, and designed to have the lightest footprint possible. And like everything Patagonia makes, they're backed by a lifetime ironclad guarantee. Visit patagonia.com slash climbing to see the latest. We get support from BetterHelp to connect you to licensed therapists. They'll match you with the perfect therapist for a fraction of the cost of traditional therapy. You know who goes to therapy? Prince Harry, Emma Stone, Jenny Slate, Kesha. Therapy is 
beautiful. Everyone should go to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com slash climbing to sign up and receive 10% off your first month. It helps support the show and it helps support you. I would just say those two step experiences, like the inventory and the declaring that, the fourth and fifth step, and then the eighth and ninth where you really make amends, it scared the shit out of me. I'm not going to lie. I just knew in the pit of my stomach, I got to start this process, and I've been kicking this can down the road. And of course, the moment I started on it, there was a grace and a freedom uh, that came through the interaction with the person, a humility, a brokenness, a vulnerability, all that stuff, man. It was a fucking moving experience. And uh, man, that... Nobody does that in normal life unless you have to, right? Like when you're an alcoholic or any ism, if you know your life depends on doing these things, then yeah, you're going to have the willingness. But that I see as a gift of this condition because most people don't have a condition in life that forces them to live that way. And I'm not an honest guy by default, but with a set of tools and enough time, I've learned um, with grace how to move in that direction. And so it's been really practiced. Lucas's life looks a lot different these days. He graduated nursing school, wrote a couple of books, and he still believes in being a student of life. And if you meet him at the crag or in the mountains, chances are you'll share a few laughs rather than a few drinks. And he'll treat you like you're an old friend. He's still writing, running, and climbing through life. A little lighter, a little wiser, and with a lot more joy. Today, climbing is a fundamental part of my life. I would say more a perspective than an actual activity. To me, that's like how it should be. It's something I'm always thinking about and, and, and operating with. I just love climbing like, you know, completely. The ability to be outdoors on those few occasions I get them, to move my body through space and gravity in a way that's thought-provoking, that's in tune, uh, synchronized and harmonious. The dance itself is fantastic and it's great when you can do it without like a guilty conscience because in the past I would go to climbing maybe to run away from life and these days it's sort of like the last little treat to adorn your dessert or something like life is full and it's beautiful without climbing but these days when I get to it's just like that additional thing I, I don't take it for granted and I'm very happy I definitely love the performance aspect to always try hard because it forces you to engage with failure and there's a beautiful relationship you can have with growth and failure if done I think appropriately that's not demoralizing but that's super empowering and then of course um, yeah I love the community so I keep it close it's been the mark of my time in sobriety being able as a storyteller or writer to share those stories of people and what climbing does for them it's basically just outward facing like I'm always gonna love it and try hard but yeah uh, climbing my relationship to it these days is it's just a beautiful tool that keeps me plugged into others and allows me to hopefully share other people's stories and that's where I get like the most inspiration from.
I just heard uh, a few interviews that old Largo did recently. We've had correspondence, so I, I don't mean to speak for him or anything, but it seems like he's kind of coming a little bit formally out of a closeted space with his conditions and where he's been in his past. I think when you have a pillar like him, what he represents in our climbing history, expressing that, it's extremely powerful. I don't think I have much influence or reach on the community. Uh, I just am happy to stay right-sized and influence my circle of friends in life and, and be outward facing with what my condition is. As a community with our pursuits toward better inclusion, uh, equity, and representation, I'm optimistic for all of that. I mean, I've only got my experience and I'm glad there's a lot of others with other conditions and other points of view that can help. But yeah, I'm super optimistic ultimately because my experience with people in sobriety is that those who stay sober and practice it continue to get lives and evolutions of themselves or iterations of themselves that are just mind-blowingly good. <laughs> my relationship to that process of being broken and finding recovery has made me very much aware of other people who are struggling in life with anything. I don't know if I consider myself a writer, but all the stories I've come to tell have been usually about people who have had hardships. And I think that when we go through and get through those hardships in life, we are so much more equipped to navigate them with others. We, we almost long for other people. The mark of my life is that the longer I've been able to maintain sobriety, which I see as a gift, the more I'm able to be useful to others. And uh, so if the collective consciousness of a climbing community or outdoor community is gonna take the time to be inward facing and take that inventory and ask ourselves who we are and who we wanna become, and then hear more stories and be more inclusive, ultimately that's just gonna make us more useful to other people. So hopefully, as a collective, I think that, yeah, as long as the culture is willing to have more conversations about who we really are as humans, besides who we are as just climbers, I think we're going to make huge strides. And sure, we've got some liabilities, but the climbing community is, I think, a great thing to be a part of. I think more than most situations in life, you'll find that these communities just want you to thrive. They want you to surmise your challenges, to find success, and to hopefully attach to something bigger than yourself, like the beauty of the natural world or and or the connection to the people that are also there doing it. This podcast is proudly presented by Patagonia. Additional support from Deuter USA, LA Outdoor, and Otoon. Visit fortheloveofclimbing.com for resources and support. And you can find more of Lucas Roman's writing at d'angelopublications.com.